Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Kieran Whitaker is the founder and CEO of EntoCycle. Did you know in the UK and EU, we are 95% dependent on protein imports? And the majority of this isn't protein that we eat, it's what we use to feed the animals that we eat. The way we currently source and consume protein is taking a huge toll on our planet and is not sustainable. Kieran created EntoCycle to accelerate a global shift to sustainable protein using insects. Insects are a much more efficient and sustainable source of protein, requiring less land, water and development time compared to meat and plant-based proteins. There are even insects like the black soldier fly that can feed on food waste and turn that into a natural fertiliser. Kieran discusses the exciting future of insect protein and how that can help tackle food poverty and climate change. Hey Kieran, great to have you on the show. How are you? Hi Craig, I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So look, I um, always like to look at the background of the guest a little bit first. I saw you studied Environment Design and Sustainability University. And I'd say like most of the guests I have on the show that work in tech for good, it's like something they do like later on in their career. But it sounds like from quite an early age, you, you kind of knew that that might be a space you wanted to go into. What, what attracted you to that degree and like that topic early on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, kind of, I don't remember when I didn't want to be in this uh, this area. Uh, truth be told, so I kind of I grew up in a household where you know you had to turn the lights off. The, the energy was down, and you put an extra jumper on if you were cold. Everything got recycled um, before we even had recycle bins. You know, my dad used to drive us off to put the bottles in the bottle bank on the way to football on the Saturday morning. Uh, we had a compost in the garden. We grew vegetables at home. So you know, from probably the very first instances I can remember like like sustainability wasn't even the word back then it was just like being good just a good person good for the planet doing what you can putting a little bit extra yard in um you know made it uh, made it and I think that just has always pushed its way through I was also good at geography at school um kind of and really looked at the kind of human aspect of geography so how you know how humans created flooding with changing rivers how humans created kind of deserts by cutting it down and then not having enough like uh, vegetation to then be able to hold in the moisture or the nutrition of the water so that i think the whole of my kind of upbringing which i can only really thank my parents um, but also the kind of communities that we we hung around with and i also think the fact that uh, my dad's a refugee to the country as i did that extra you know from chile has added that little extra flavor for me to want to just do good yeah, def- definitely makes makes a lot of sense. And so, like you like play this out, like you finish your degree, you then become a scuba diving instructor, right? And you travel the world for like five years, which sounds incredible. But what was the point where you realised that you like needed to or wanted to start a company? Coming back to that kind of like sustainability focus. So I um, the reason I went travelling in reality is that I kind of didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I just finished my masters, um, and the, uh, it was quite, quite exhausting. Plus, uh, I actually injured myself, so I was quite into sport and nutrition and fitness. So I thought I'd just go and have one more trip abroad. And I went to India, and kind of my mum had always been told me about when she went traveling there as a teenager. And that one year led into two years, which led into scuba diving, which led into... And everyone always says, oh, what was that aha moment? And the reality was there wasn't an aha moment. I saw dead coral reef in loads of places. I saw almost no fish wherever there are humans. I saw deforestation in Indonesia and Malaysia and Honduras and Mexico. And every single time, it's just like, oh, this is 
horrendous. There's rubbish plastic floating around. There's everywhere we as people go, we damage, we we leave waste, we create turmoil for the local environment. And I was just, I literally, I was, it, was, it wasn't a hard, but I had like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't be the person enjoying the kind of fruits of this planet. I actually need to do something about saving it, about helping it. And that's why I moved from like most people's dream of living on a beach pretty much in Mexico, drinking a beer with your, in your board shorts and your feet in the water uh, in 30 plus degree weather to move back to London in the middle of winter to, to start the company because it, you know, I couldn't get out of bed again without doing something about it. And I think that's what completely drives me now is this kind of, no matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult things are, you know, you're doing something good. So you get out, you do it again, get up. You, you know, and, uh, and that's why I think it's so important to be involved in, in the whole kind of sustainability agenda, whether that's societal or environmental. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think the same thing more like sobering, than seeing it firsthand like I think we're very privileged in this country that we get shielded from a lot of stuff and you you can kind of pretend like it doesn't exist but once you witness it firsthand there's like there's no escaping that so I'd like to add on to that because actually if if you like drive past or fly over England you don't see any nature you see field after field after field and that's not you know I'm not saying I'm not shooting farmers down here I'm just saying we don't really have that nature we we are using the natural capital of other countries and other parts of the world uh, as opposed to actually us conserving. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like we are privileged. We are in a very lucky position where we can then go off and see the rest of that, the world. Uh, but apologies, I jumped in. No, no, no. Important point to make. Um, and what I was going to say was like, we're going to talk about EnterCycle specifically in like a moment, but first I always like to chat to guests a bit more about like the space they operate in. Um, and one of the term, uh, the term I think you use on your website mainly is sustainable protein. I just wondered if you can just explain like what you mean by that term. Uh, so there's quite a few things when it comes to protein. I think it's quite a, a, an unknown, uh, if you want to call it, a re- resource. Um, so the, the food standards, sorry, the, the FAO, um, they have uh, there's been a decree that we're going to be about 60 million tons of protein short this decade. Now that is a huge amount, and we're not we're not we're not talking about the chickens or the pigs or the animals that we actually can farm. We're talking about the actual food that goes in to feed those animals. So for at a best, and I kind of don't really believe that it's out there, but at best for every kilo of fish you farm, you need to feed it three kilos of protein. That the, the number is similar with chickens, it's you know, with cows, with pigs, it's even higher. So this kind of ratio of how much you have to get into an animal to then be able to have those products, no matter how sustainable that farmer might be, you know, they might take on to all of their, their you know, the positives that they can they might rewild their land they might but that feed that then comes in is just a huge problem and so the uk and europe we're about 95 percent dependent on protein imports and that's one of the key drivers of, of inflation at the moment is that we're having to buy this protein feed that comes from south america whether it's soy protein from brazil or argentina or fish meal that comes from various regions of the world but again predominantly from south america and then that's shipped to the four corners of the world, made into feed pellets, and then shipped to the other four corners of the world to feed the animals. That massive global supply chain that was affected by COVID, affected by the Suez Canal getting blocked, massively affected because of the commodity with the war in, in uh, Ukraine at the moment. And all of these three things have had massive effects, and they're going to be tiny compared to the effects that, for example, climate change and the climate catastrophe will cause. Uh, again, Brazil is expected to lose up to 50% of all its soy production. 50, we're, we're going to see starvation off the back of that. So protein and locally sourced protein and protein that's made upon 
positive input. So using waste is what we call sustainable protein. And that's where insects play such a key role. Got it. And and that was going to be my next question. Like insect protein is something that I think I don't just lots of people just don't know about. Um, what are the different types of insects that you typically see like being used at the moment as source of protein? And like what are the diff- different applications for insect protein? Obviously, talk about like kind of feed for animals. What else might we expect to see in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. So Europe is normally well known globally for being a very slow at changing regulation. Um, and it's you know, it's normally the last place that regulation changes. In this case, with insects, Europe actually changed it first. And that's because, again, I just talked about the kind of protein deficit and, and how much we have to import. So Europe spent several years on a project looking at the sustainability and the health. But it's kind of a bit of a, like, why did they even have to do that? Why do countries even have to think about insects? Because we already pay premium for free-range chickens because they spend their entire time in the field eating insects. It's called fly fishing for a reason because you catch fish with flies. Like, insects are the food. Watch Lion King. What is Pumbaa doing when they're when they're singing uh, any of the songs? Ripping open a bit of wood and eating insects. This is what animals eat. Two thirds of the world humans already eat insects as kind of part of their diet. Whether that's crickets in in Mexico, whether that's kind of other insects in Southeast Asia, whether that's kind of uh, the different um, tropical species that live in Africa. Like people eat it and they're delicious, they're tasty. Uh, but kind of to come back to that legislation piece, so Europe moved first because we have no other alternatives we have to be able to produce protein otherwise we're going to be at the mercy of price rises etc which is happening today um so europe legislated five insects which are kind of two of the jumping insects so your crickets and your grasshoppers which people will know then there's two types of mealworms they're a beetle species um mealworms are traditionally a pest for grains like wheat or a barley etc and then the fifth one is black soldier fly uh, we focus on the on the on the last one, the black soldier fly, for multiple reasons. Uh, but predominantly, it's because a it's the fastest growing. B you can feed it on food waste, and C it is a non-disease, non-pest species. So the insects will never go and eat an apple up. The larvae will never go and eat an apple up a tree, or the fly will never go and land on manure, then land on your your food. Um, and so it's just this wonderfully quick, wonderfully natural product that we can produce at mass scale. Um, your second question was the different markets. So we're kind of, the reality is all markets will be using insects. And actually, as we're seeing now, insects just as food and feed is probably just one angle of insects. We're seeing this entire umbrella of a new industry develop. So right now, insects are predominantly in pet food. Uh, so there are multiple brands out there and people we've hired into the company have either built, managed or led these brands. Um, it's also going to feed fish, chickens and pigs. Uh, but we are starting to see now uh, the human market in an uptick. So high-end chocolates, snacks, protein bars, protein shakes. And I think where it's going to go is a protein flour. We're not asking people to eat whole insects here. But a protein, natural, organic, nutrient-rich protein flour in your pasta, in your bread, in your noodles. And so you're getting that, uh, your high-quality protein you know, as we like to say, protein, it doesn't cost the earth. It's a, uh, it doesn't cost the earth in price point. It doesn't cost the earth from a, from a biological point of view. Um, but as I said, I think insects are going to become this entire umbrella industry where you're going to see waste management. Again, it's what insects do. They recycle all the waste and they turn it into other products. We're going to see it going to pharmaceuticals, into the beauty industry. And, and you're already starting to see this. So where insect cycle sit in that whole entire value position is actually creating the technology that scales the production of these insects anywhere on the planet awesome 
Um, and you, you just answered about three of my questions at once. So that was <laughs> very, very good. Um, you just explained what Encycle does. Um, I guess going back to like we picking up where your journey ended, where you, you'd seen all this stuff firsthand, the damage being done, you want to do something about it. Like, did you know about insect protein at that point? Was that something linked to stuff you knew from like your degree or background? Or, or was that like you went on a bit of a journey trying to research options? No, so actually as, as part of my kind of final thesis, I was looking at um, we were meant to have a code for sustainable um, homes by 2016. So every new building was meant to be green, highly sustainable, even energy creation. And we kind of, you know, with a change in government, a change in philosophy, we didn't, we didn't get there yet. Uh, and my, my belief was, well, what's the point of having green homes if everyone jumps in a four by four to drive around the corner to buy food that's flown half around the world? Uh, so I created a code for sustainable urban space, which is quite a dull piece of work, to be honest. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie, but it covered a lot of really interesting areas. And some of those is around recycling, upcycling. How do you recapture nutrients? How do you reuse water instead? Of, you know, right now we, it rains, it rains onto concrete, then it wa- washes off into our rivers and then washes out into our oceans. And then two months, three months later, we hit the kind of spring, summer, and we have a drought and then we're running out of water. So we're looking at all these kind of localized ways of doing things. And one of them was insects. So it's like, how can you recycle the nutrients? One third of all the food that we buy is thrown away. And if you go fork to fork, so that's in the ground from the farmer to our fork and our plate, we're losing 40, 50, 60, 70 percent in some verticals of the food that's actually produced, which is insane. That's because the the farmer can't afford to dig it out because they're not being paid enough or that's because the middleman don't like the look of that potato or because the skins have been cut off and it's not part of that kind of ready meal. It, and, you know, you go for the whole way for that life cycle. And so we're losing so much of the nutrients of, of, and all the hard work. Remember, we're pouring in fertilizers, we're pouring in water, we're pouring in pesticides, we're pouring in, uh, you know, you name it, we're, we're pouring on top just to throw most of it away again. And so the idea here was how do you recapture that? And so part of my degree was looking at this but then kind of looking forward you just like you see it you see insects are everywhere they are they are nature's recyclers they're not even the recyclers they're nature's upcyclers it's a like there is no waste in nature the apple falls from the tree the worm eats the apple the bird eats the worm not we got the food web there is no such thing as waste so that's the kind of the genesis of entercycle the genesis of, of why we do what we do your kind of second question was around the company so what, what do we do so we focus on precision technology with insects. Now, by that, I mean when you have an insect factory or let's say when you have a, you're a cow farmer, you may have 10, 20, 200, 1,000, you know, a super large farmer, like a chicken farmer may have 10,000 chickens or 20,000 chickens. We have billions, billions of heads of insects. So we have a huge volume that are growing incredibly fast so that the juvenile larvae turn from the size of kind of sub millimeters uh, as a a baby larvae all the way into about an inch two and a half centimeters in kind of 10 to 12 days and that is a supercharged process about seven to ten thousand times their body mass and they're just munching away the only way to really do that in precision and get that kind of quality control and that product that's needed for the market we believe is kind of we use automation we take the best in class in the food sourcing industry in the feed industry and use computer vision uh, and we also then kind of uh, automate that whole system so that you can build these kind of large, high precision throughput by putting waste in one end and getting high quality protein and fertilizer out the other. So that, that's what we are. We build machines, that count lots of insects, and we do it at scale. 
nice um and you make it sound like it's <laughs> quite simple i'm sure there's a, a huge amount of r&d that goes into building something like this and, and i guess going back to those early days like when you you knew obviously about this space you knew it could be a possible solution when you are trying to build out this kind of deep tech do the r&d that's very labor intensive that's going to take some time how do you like how do you navigate that in the early days like in terms of like how far along like how validated was that idea and then based on that like how easy is it to secure some form of funding to allow you to go and do enough r&d to to like take it the next step if you see what i mean yes yeah, it's a great question and i think the honest truth is uh, any founder goes into any startup like this to start their own company they do it quite blind you know especially a first time founder like myself you have no idea on that real journey you're going to go on. You have this bright spark. And I think when you come from a sustainability or an ethical background, like that bright spark is to fix a massive global problem. It's not just to fix a commercial problem, which it also is. It's to fix a massive global uh, environmental issue. And so uh, the journey for me was um, kind of not having an insect background. I actually went to Brazil and built a pilot. So why Brazil? Because the insects are found globally, but it's just as easy to do it there because you have the right conditions. Don't speak any Portuguese barely do now but enough to get around um and you know i used the money i'd saved up uh to, to build that small pilot facility i then returned to the uk and i built a kind of a, a very small you know your classic startup in in a garden shed basically a, a what my one of my now colleagues and friends called a tardis it, you know looked like a space machine um but the whole point of this was can i take what's an, a natural outdoors process and kind of convert it indoors and capture the data and once i kind of saw that I was also very much in mind that I knew the European Union were going to change legislation in the coming years. You know, it could have been one year, 10 years, but it was coming. So you had this kind of technical uh, know-how that I was learning. And then the regulatory framework was changing for the positive. Um, but the truth is, when I talked to people, I said, I'm going to farm insects at scale and I'm going to, I'm going to help create this entire industry. People were just looking at me like I was crazy. You know, like, you want to what? You want to how? And people were fascinated, but were like, Ugh. I mean, now look at the Barclays Bank report, look at Rabobank in Europe. It's a 10 billion industry at the smallest by the end of this decade. Pet food alone with insect protein is going to be between 10 and 15 billion. So it's a huge, as I said, it's an umbrella industry now. It's not just for one market segment. It's an entire um, technology that will service lots and lots of different markets. And that's why it's so exciting for us to be the kind of picks and shovels. You know, the gold rush was powered by Levi's jeans and pickaxes. We're there. We are going to power this with the technology that underpins it. Um, your second question was kind of like around funding and R and D and timeline. So yes, you know, when you take deep tech with biotech with um, kind of hardware. That is a very long bell curve of development, technical development. So we've been very good at uh, with the likes of European and UK government funding because again, that, they love to fund R and D that technical development. Um, it has helped a lot. That I think the kind of the timing was ideal around the story, the narrative. So I was fortunate enough to get into several accelerator programs, including Y Combinator in America, uh, which is where we raised our seed round. And then kind of, you, ha you have to do everything at the same time. Uh, I have a, ironically, I have a friend who I'll be meeting later today who's now left the kind of the startup space, but he summed up perfectly. Like you have, at the beginning, you have to be really good at doing every, everything in a very average way. That's what that's what you are as a fan of. Like you just have to be able to do everything. Just whether you are the entomologist, the engineer, the designer, the sales guy, the fundraiser, the business pitch, you've got to do all of that. And then you have to go and find people. And I think this is where, you know, um 
jobs are good is is a, is a, is a, is a, is a nice overlap and the stuff that you guys do which is finding like-minded driven people is fundamental to being that build business because you're doing something really hard you are like honestly when you're starting any company it's really difficult it's really challenging that's why most don't succeed and that's why actually probably 90 percent of the public won't even ever try to do it themselves but by doing something that gets you out of bed in the morning makes you think that you're gonna do something better and you have a driving passion for and hopefully you can hear it in my voice and the way i i, I react like uh no matter how crap your night is or the day before was yeah you, you can drive again no matter how many problems you're facing you can drive again so I think combining those things together, the fact that there is R&D funding out there, the fact that it's a, it's a good time narrative, and the fact it's a really perfect time to like market opportunity, coalesce to, to help fund what is in quite a lot of uh, capital needed to get us where we are. But we have some fantastic investors on board, mission-aligned investors, so investors who believe in not just you know making you know it's venture capital, so they care about making large sums of capital off the back of this but also doing it to help save the planet. So that's it's always been this kind of right place, right time, and that drive and dedication, which has kind of, I think, got us to where we are today. Definitely. And and like on that point about getting the right VCs, because like it's hard, isn't it? Because you'll be at a point of, I wouldn't say desperation, but like if you know you're running out of runway, like there's there's a pressure there to, to secure funding. And there has to be, not necessarily temptation, but like there's just that, that pressure building of, I need to get the money how do you like how have you personally navigated that in terms of to ensure that you are bringing in vcs that are aligned with your values with your mission it's the combination of like ridiculous amounts of hours days and weeks and months of hard work and luck like this let's, let's not be around the bush is you have to get out there you have to network you have to go to events you have to have introductions um you know, as, as, a, as I said, as a first-time founder who came from living on a beach in the other side of the world to actually then go and build that network and build that list like you have to get out the door. You literally have to throw yourself in the deep end um, and you just have to start building that, that, that network is the best way. Um, and so we've had some um, long-term like amazing investors, so Lower Carbon in America, who are now, I think, one of the biggest funds over there, um, and Clementum, who lead this round, who uh, are a European, Danish, uh, French fund. And, you know, they were found by getting out the door, talking to people, whether it was lower carbon and getting into Y Combinator, who then made an introduction to an investor, who that investor then made an introduction. It often is the case. Once you get an investor and you show that investor you know, the love and attention and what you're doing, is they will then introduce you and then they will introduce you. And, you know, almost seven degrees of separation gets you to where, to where you're going. Is there, is there like due diligence that you can do like when you get? introduced to the right person you're having those conversations are there certain questions or like criteria that you will look for um to make sure that yeah even if they were willing to put the money in that actually if they're not right you're flagging that quite early on so you're not wasting their time and yours yes and no so like beggars can't be choosers as, as, as you've said but also we've like, there's, there's always three types of investors you're looking for there's like mission aligned investors investors who can introduce you to to the right types of people and then good names you know everyone wants a good name everyone wants a good brand because that by default is, is advertising and attracts uh, the same companies um we've been predominant so uh, i suppose the there's a kind of the y combinator like reality is you need capital to grow so you, you should take money when it's on the table and then there's once you've got traction, once you've got more of a um, 
uh, a position in the market, once you're kind of in a better position to raise, then you can really start to find those sustainable companies or the sustainable investors. So we are, we are really lucky. Like, you know, we have people who have built sustainability companies before and sold them, and then now they're, they're reinvesting their capital, or we have directly ESG funds or funds that are directly challenging and helping fight climate change or social injustice. So it's, it's been a bit of both. As I said, it's been a lot of hard work and, and a heavy, and a heavy, heavy dollop of luck. Um, but having, you know, a, a good team around you or help, help keep helping you drive and drive and drive. Cause I mean, we have investors from America to Japan and <laughs> spread that across the world. So, you know, pitches at 6am in the morning to midnight uh, and sometimes in the same day, you know, you've just got to do it. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And so coming back to so this huge market opportunity for like within the insect protein space, you're like the tech enablement layer. Um, from what I can see on the website, you have like three core products, if that's right. I was just wondering, can you explain a bit more about what each of those products exactly does and then also like the revenue model for each? When building any new industry or any new market, there's not there's never one answer, you know, and it's never the reality. Even look at someone like Ocado, they don't just have a single piece of technology that's that's their whole magical facility. Um there are lots of different steps and lots of different processes and lots of different technologies that this industry needs to, to develop, to scale. Um, um, how the industry looks in 10, 15 years will be fundamentally different to how it looks now. However, we have taken the best in class, as I mentioned earlier, from the food counting industry, from the uh, kind of animal feed industry, from kind of more other traditional industries, and then applied it to insects. So our, our flagship project at the moment, uh, pr- product at the moment is the Ensat Neo. So this is a what's called a neonate counting machine and it counts baby insects so what it does it counts and distributes and that's fundamental because if you don't know how many animals you have in your system whether you're any farmer you have no idea about how much food to feed them or how much waste to feed them or what temperature to keep them at or anything you know let alone how much good that quality of that product will be to then provide to the, their customer base so we see this as a fundamental beating heart of any insect factory anywhere in the world um, and it's Patent, um, patent pending. I mean, it's now at the international patent stage. It's pretty much done and dusted. Um, patents are an incredibly long process to go through. So that's one of them. Uh, again, when you're wrapping around breeding, actually farming insects are two different processes. One is producing the next generation. And so the, the smallest amount of insects you can use to then produce that next generation, essentially that's a cost center. So the less you have to spend on that or the, or the most efficient way of producing those means that you can concentrate as many to make the protein. And the protein is generally where most companies will then be able to sell on their product. So you have this circular process and this linear process. And we build technology that enables us to do both of those systems as efficiently as possible. But also we are building full factories for uh, full factory solutions for customers. So we have a really exciting project in the Middle East. We have a project here in North England. We have projects going on in East Africa. Um, we, you know, we're looking at a global scale for our technology. 
And I don't know if you're allowed to share this. So will it be like more of like a consultancy way of working with these customers? Like it's very custom per project or is it like a SaaS model that you will have? Yeah. So yeah, more SaaS if you want it, factory as a service or TAS technology as a service. Uh, we're selling hardware that has a, a recurring revenue on the back end because of remote management. You know, this and it's very standardized and it's, um, you know, we will always be providing digital upgrades, technical upgrades, but also the next generation. And that kind of that, that's the way we see the long term trend in, in most industries. Got it. Got it. And, and um, you know, looking ahead now, uh, you've just uh, raised a, you know, over five million Series A at the start of this year. Um, how are you going to deploy that? Like, what's the big focus this year and next? So the, the big focus this first quarter is uh, scaling up the team. Uh, he- heavily hiring across all market segments. So that's technical from entomology to engineering to process engineering to CAD flow, you know, you name it across the entire engineering portfolio, science team as well as scaled up and then commercial team as well. Um, so we've had a really busy year thus far. I think we're on nine hires in, in I think it's in six weeks, um, which is quite a, a, you know, it's not a super fast speed, but it's pretty rapid, especially given the rest of the, how the economy is going. Um, we still need to scale that team up. So kind of a lot of this Q1. Uh, secondly, as a commercial team, we're really kind of now getting out the building. So we've already just come back from a, a trip to Turkey. Uh, we've got trips to Southeast Asia, the US, um, other parts of the Middle East, UK, Europe, uh, where we're going to be kind of building out the, the uh, commercial pipeline. Um, and then R&D. So we've taken on, we've got quite fantastic, you know, most other biotech companies or even in the insect world, they're in the middle of nowhere often is the case. We're right in the heart of London. So we've just taken a larger cap- a larger uh, facility here where we are able to attract the best talent. You know, people want to be here. People want to work here. Um, and we are turning this into a center of excellence and a demonstration facility so people can come and actually see our technology as it's as it's been developed or as it's, uh, you know, to, to purchase essentially as a showroom. So uh, a hell of a lot is happening is the answer. Um, and it's all happening at the same time. And actually, I've uh, an, a kind of an, a story, if you want, from Y Combinator, uh, which is actually by the founders. Um, I probably shouldn't say who the founders were, but quite well. Well, they're a multi-billion-dollar company now. But they've said that uh, at the beginning, when you're building a company, like you feel like you're always just pushing, like what they call it, sell, uh, not sellotape, they call it whatever tape they have over in America. And you're putting duct tape over everything. You're, just try, you're growing, so you're putting duct tape on all the cracks and all the problems and all the issues, but you're still growing. And, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And then when you become a $100 million company or a billion-dollar company, the reality is you are still using duct tape to strap on everywhere. There's just a hell of a lot more of you doing a hell of a lot of it faster. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not scaling fast enough. You're probably, like, letting opportunities go. You're probably, you know... It's, you're doing it in a coordinated way, but you are you, you're never really getting out of that you know, fight, 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 check that move, 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 move. Um, and I always remember that, and I feel that like that's quite apt for most kind of companies and quite a fast trajectory. And I guess like just following on from that, like you know, a lot of the headlines in the news for the last three six months have been like layoffs, companies growing too fast, the hype in the startup environment of of like funding, have to hire loads of people. Is that tempering anything on your side? Like you obviously want to grow, you want to make sure you're maximizing the opportunities and able to convert them. But there is also a part of you saying like, this still needs to be like realistic, pragmatic growth. Let's not go too far here. Is that like affecting you at all? Or? There's always the fear of crash and burn, isn't there? I mean, you have to always be conscious of that and make sure you have enough runway and make sure you have investors on board who are kind of, uh, kind of prepared to go on the journey with you. But then on the flip side, 
like in a hundred years time will people still be using facebook i mean people are barely even using facebook now uh, like you know a lot of the technology tech startups out there are not actually solving critical issues in the industry they're making you get something faster or buy something quicker or buy more of something you know the, and these these are not companies that will probably be around in the next kind of 100 200 years then they're not needed we will always need food we will always need a way to recycle we will always need a way to kind of sustainably maintain this this planet or whatever you want to call it so companies like Encycle, i feel like it's, it's a very different narrative very different story and the faster we grow, the better for the world it will be. And I think more and more people are coming on board with that, even to the point where companies now, uh, countries sorry, are having national protein strategies. So some of the more forward-thinking countries, you've got Germany, France, Denmark, they literally go, okay, like we are going to be hit. Like, we don't want to be screwed in 10 years' time. We want to know how we're going to be able to feed our populace. Uh, how, what do we do? So they have these national protein strategies, which means they have their funding strategies, and then they, they have their investment into R&D. Singapore, 20 the 30-30 challenge, even though know, countries in the Middle East that are 100% almost dependent on imports are looking at how they can uh, actually produce their own, their own food. So I, the trend is all in the right way for us, and not only just the trend in terms of kind of like people, countries, people getting smart, the companies are. You know, Tesco CEO came out and said that insects going to be part of our like, supply chain. Uh, one of the biggest uh, um, restaurant chains, well, multiple actually, are all, are all approaching us now about how they can uh, green, like truly green, not greenwash, truly green their supply chains. So for us, it's, you know, we're, tailwinds are all in the right direction. We're doing something that helps the planet. Um, and like we have just closed this capital. So we're in a very kind of fortunate position and lucky position um, to be hiring and to be growing and to be building and to be commercializing. Um, and I mean, it, it's kind of working so far. We've booked more this month than we had as a company uh, previously for the whole whole duration of the company. So booked revenue that is. So yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting time to be in cycle. Definitely, definitely sounds like it is. Um, so to chat to you a little bit more about like you personally, like your journey, um, you know, you've gone from fairly carefree traveling scuba diver instructor to like business founder. It must have been quite a shock, you know, going from that kind of lifestyle to to work in a business, um, like running a business with, with little experience of that prior. Um, what's like one thing you've really had to work on or like upskilling um, to be as effective as possible as like CEO slash founder of the business? Well, you can copy and paste a bit from earlier, but as I said, I probably wouldn't hire myself because, you know, as a, as, a, as a real jack of all trades, but I think as again, whether it's been skill or luck or probably a bit of both, the, the one of the key things is just getting better people in just a company than you are at what, you, what the job you were doing, whether you're an entomologist, the, the engineer, the scientist, the sales guy, like just got to find the best people you can um, and people who are really kind of just elevate the company, um, you know, i I am almost for sure the dumbest person in the room and every time we ever go into any kind of business, any, any subject area in the company, uh, I think what I was very good at and what I still am good at is kind of being the, the mouthpiece of the company, being the kind of the driving force around getting the name out there, getting the awareness out there, talking to people, whether that's customers, investors, legislators, regulators, government, etc. the whole, that whole piece, the whole, um, you know, because it all, it all tails down. You need someone to drive, and then you need like fun, amazing people to, to build and deliver. So I think that's the what I've been pretty good at um, in terms of like hiring. I think in terms of um, like what I've had to really like might sound ridiculous, but 
didn't know how to send group emails, didn't know how to do all this stuff at the beginning. You know, I knew how to take people underwater and show them beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, ecosystems and, and animals um, and do that, uh, you know. Uh, so I can't probably tell you, Leslie, in a single particular, I, I am a lot more organized now. I'm a lot more, as much as probably a lot of my colleagues say I'm not, but like from, from before, I'm a lot more process driven, much better at listening to other people's kind of inputs or advice or just being comfortable with um uh letting people get on with it like you have to like like you can't hold the reins across 25 30 40 people you just have to okay we brought you in we trust you to do it off you go and if there's an issue come and ask and if there is a serious issue like we're here to help like we like the rest of the team so i think they are skills that i didn't know i had or i didn't have and i've had to learn um it's really kind of hands uh, you know arm uh, arm's length approach just trust people let them get on with it let them do what they do best and if, if it doesn't work probably you need to find someone else then you know you need to find someone else to get in that position i was gonna say and like when you are learning new skills and if it is admin if it's culture staff if it's management like are you someone who it's just like fail fast keep learning keep improving like are you very much driving that yourself or have you found actually from time to time having like a coach or are you someone who listens to a lot of stuff reads a lot of stuff like how are you driving yourself to keep improving mainly the former and the latter of those three that you put so i uh, i think i'm not that afraid of failing I, I don't know where that came from like if you get something wrong so be it just just move on learn but just move on and keep failing keep failing keep failing i think you often as a founder as well, don't feel like you ever have time to do anything you feel like yeah i'm sure you you know you know this from from your like you always feel this like your list is forever long um and it never gets shorter. If anything, it only gets longer. Like you, you, you know. Uh, and I remember uh, a while back before I, I met my my partner. Like my Friday nights were spent with a four pack of beer and a and and clearing my inbox. And that was great at clearing my inbox, but it meant I felt terrible for the rest of the weekend. And I probably didn't have enough rest and relax. You know, I I, would, I didn't charge my batteries again. I'd, I'd be looking at my. Uh, my inbox or my phone continuously whether the messages emails um i've i think the other part is actually again i think kind of comes back to what i said previously which is just have, like there are better people out there doing nearly everything that you want to do just get them in get them on board get them somehow excited and, and engaged and i think again because we're in the sa- same area like having somebody from who they're sustainably minded or wants to make an impact in the world there's that extra oomph that extra drive that extra uh, posit- positivity that they can bring to the company and, and the role um, as well as all the incentive you know as well as paying well as well as having you know a, a fun place to work and a good place to work like having that mission and that, that drive I think f- absolutely fundamental like you know I couldn't go in and be an accountant well I couldn't be an accountant full stop probably because I'm terrible at numbers but I couldn't be an accountant uh, for a you know a company that's chopping down trees you know I, like I just I couldn't I I don't know what I do with myself, but you know, I could probably be an accountant if I had to. It's somebody who's helping to save the planet. Totally. And I just want to unpack the hiring thing a little bit more, actually, because I feel like that's a real skill that doesn't get talked about enough. And it's like, you know, early stage founders having to hire these incredible people, these specialists, but they don't know much about that skill set themselves. Like, how do you go about doing that and bringing in these these people that are going to like level up your organization? But if it's so someone in marketing or if it's someone um, in 
yeah, CAD engineering, whatever it might be, like, what are you looking for, Kieran, in those people? What do they, what do they have to demonstrate? You're like, wow, that person will take that area to the next level. There's two things that I think, again, I have been good at, and then there's several things that the company is good at. So two things that I've been good at is I think you gen, like, unless they're a sales, unless they're, unless they're like, they are a salesperson, and then by default, their job is to sell and sell themselves. You kind of get a good impression almost immediately from somebody, you know, within the first five, ten minutes. Um, and that is, you know, there's so many different types of bias can be in there. You know, you do, like, by default, people often do highlight themselves. But believe me, like, again, come around the company, like, we're trying to increase our diversity and we've done really well this time around, but this higher. But we have lots of different types of styles in the company. I think just having that kind of gumption to let's say, okay, actually, I think this person could be really good. Let's, let's, let's push that forward. The second one is then those people that you then hire, give them the freedom and the, and the free reign to then go and make their own hires, but to a, to a process. And so we've been very good at bringing like outside help to at least do part of the, um, uh, the hiring process of so bringing in someone who's better than us at a particular, you know, whether it's an engineering area or science area, at least, getting that first wave of people so having a good process internally but also getting some outside help um and then what's been really useful i think because we're in we're predominantly a stem company so for people who don't know that's kind of uh, engineers etc and the cult the, the diversity of workforce is even smaller in stem than it is in any other industry you know it's predominantly white males and ones who are in the market have probably been around for 10 15 20 years so they're going to be old middle-aged white men aka me um but we we really put some emphasis and really put some structure in to make sure that the the job specs that go out there are are as kind of uh gender neutralized as possible and remove any kind of phrase phraseology or any or terminology that might be off-putting uh all names are removed from any of the cvs or any of the so when they, that first round of 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 a uh, kind of uh, of hiring at least is done without any unknown or willingly prejudice for positive or negative um and then actually i think so that means in the last kind of uh more than 50 percent of the last round of hires have now been uh from other diverse backgrounds, whether that's uh, from uh, male, female, whether that's from different types of uh, race, religions, creeds, colors, you name it. Uh, it's, it's, and I think also from myself, like we're all people of the same planet. Like I think that the, the more that we can have diversity in a company, it's more important. Like you sit, show me a single article that says the other way around that white white middle-aged men leading a company leads to anything except the, the shit that we've landed ourselves in now which is a, a planet planet tumbling towards <laughs> some kind of horrendous future 100 percent um and then what i was going to ask next was like again continuing from the hiring theme um what one what do you think you do really well to attract people like you just mentioned about nine hires in six weeks like that's pretty good going um you talked a bit about the process and how that's working but like in terms of getting people to the door um, what what do you think you offer? What do you think it is about Encycle that really attracts people? And then secondly, because I think a lot of founders ask me this question, but like what hiring channels have worked best for you? Is it like network, certain like advertising platforms, LinkedIn? Like what, where have you seen most of these people coming from? So like what attracts people to a company? So I think people are becoming, they are starting to care about their mission that, that, that they do, whether they are, like I'm almost stealing words out of, 
out of of your guys' mouths now. But whether you're an accountant, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a sales team, whether you're HR, if you can do that for a sustainable company, like it's starting to become an important factor, not necessarily for everyone, but becoming more and more important. And whether that's, you know, Gen Z, who this is now bread and butter for, or this is kind of your, uh, your goldie oldies who actually want to leave a legacy and everything in between. I think that's kind of having that something that means that you're on a mission, you're doing something good for the planet, I think is becoming more and more important. And, you know, not as a brand, not, a, not as a, something we might be doing, like the, the central focus for the company is to do that. Secondly, and I think that attract, and that attracts good that, that attracts good people, like, and it always will do. Secondly, I think especially from like a science or an engineering perspective, it's just a very interesting challenge to, that we're doing. Like people are coming here, like ah, wow, okay, this is something new. This is like uh, it's something they can really get their teeth into. Um, and I think definitely from the engineering perspective, people and our, uh, uh, Matt, who is our CTO and is now moving to uh, into MD position, that's that's what you know. He always tells me it's like it's just such an interesting challenge to do. Uh, you're blending lots of skill sets. You know, you're never going to be just sat at your computer tapping away at the same thing over and over again. It's it's something always new. Um, and then I think from a well, you asked like what the pipe, like, what where do, where do we get these candidates from? There isn't a single answer. If there was hiring would be easy, and you you know you'd be out of a job. Uh, hiring is hard. Like hiring is a challenging uh, area. You spend spend a hell of a lot of time on it and you do make mistakes but we have a kind of a, a I suppose a quite a broad approach we do use recruiters we use several platforms including um, uh, LinkedIn indeed jobs for good you know I'll give you guys a, a, a name shout out as well um, it's you, you need that diverse platform because you need a diverse amount of people to come in and then internally you need a structure so you do need somebody to be whether they're blanking out the CVs, you do need somebody to be doing the first round interviews. You do need someone telephone interviews. You do need a structured way to try and then run the the um, the process so that you're, you're being able to you know measure apples versus apples. But ultimately, I think we were. I was lucky to get really good people in the beginning. And good people attract good people, and good people have put good processes in. And so it's definitely been and. Bar a couple of people, we we have just in generally hired really really good people, um, and p- people have come and gone, uh, you know. But it, but we have just really really genuinely awesome people in the business, and I'm really happy to call them like colleagues and friends. No, I'm glad to hear it. And um, I guess kind of wrapping things up a little bit now. Um, obviously, you said you're hiring at the moment. So for anyone interested, I, I assume the best place is check out the careers page on your website. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Posts on the careers page, a post on, uh, especially on the kind of more commercial activities and uh, jobs for good, um, on pushing on LinkedIn. And then uh, when it comes to more specialists like recruiter, yeah, go to www.entercycle.com forward slash careers uh, or peruse through the website or LinkedIn and you'll find them. Yeah, uh, we're looking for good people. We're looking for good talent and we'll be kind of still he- heavily hiring for the rest of the quarter and if probably not for the rest of the first half of this year uh, we've got projects four corners of the world so it's an exciting time definitely is um awesome well Kira, look, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today thanks for coming on the show and um yeah wish you and the team all the best great thank you very much uh, and likewise have a great day afternoon uh, and the rest of the week thanks for listening to today's episode if you've enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode and leave us a review 
were just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.